Monster, it's gruesome that someone. 
Indeed, flail around as much as you like. That was the Smears with the track, This Charming Man, the New York Club remix. I'm David Eastall. This is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't and some you should. Always playing the finest in indie pop and this week's special guest is all the way from the West Coast. This is Eric Matthews, who I caught up with recently to find out a bit more about love, life and poetry and also a career in music. So I've got that interview to bring you throughout the show that I've split up alongside the usual award-worthy playlist. But to get the party started, I think we should start with your favourite and mine. Indeed, it is going to be Fanfare from the album It's Eddie Heavy in Here. No, orchestral pop, we embraced and hugged it during this sort of mid or early to mid 90s. That was Eric 
Matthews, the track Fanfare from the album It's Heavy in Here, and that was on the Sub Pop record label, which we were slightly confused by because obviously Sub Pop was all about sort of the Seattle grunge scene, and suddenly this kind of lush orchestral sound came out, and we wondered what was going on. But we ch- we embrace change like we always do, and alongside the likes of it, uh, The Divine Comedy and My Life Story, it gave us a couple of years of excitement. Anyway, this is David Esau. This is the C86 show. And this week's special guest, as you can gather, is Eric Matthews, who I caught up with recently to find out more about love, life and poetry and all that sort of groovy stuff. But before the first part of the interview, I think we should hear from one of his early bands. This is Cardinal, the track Dream Figure. Take him. Well, this was on the dedicated record label. Eric, take it away. Oh, 
And that was the band Cardinal and the track called Dream Figure that obviously featured the one and only Eric Matthews, who um, there were bits of that reminded me of Nick Drake. And then I suddenly thought of Richard Penguin, who I should dedicate this show to because I know he's a huge fan of Eric Matthews. And um, for those who have come across Richard or not, he has another show on Future Radio titled Acoustic and Eclectic. Do check it out. And he's got a band Penguins Go Pop which you should go and also check out because they're very good and they've got a new album out. Anyway, David E. saw the C86 show and this week's special guest is Eric Matthews, who I caught up with. This is going to be the first part of the interview where we talk about those very early years and also the first time I came across his, um, well, the first record that he did as Eric Matthews, which featured the uh, classic single Fanfare. And this was Eric's reply and he gave me a bit of a background to his earlier years. Eric Give us the background. I know you want to correct me on this one. I'll, I'll correct you a little bit. Now, listen, you had your experience, but uh, and I'm not going to doubt it. Uh, the truth is, uh, my band, prior to my solo debut, Cardinal, we were released, uh, that would have been 1994. We came out on dedicated records there in London. And uh, I, my song, uh, I, I wrote a song on that album where I played everything and sang everything. It's really the first solo thing I ever did, um, but under the name Cardinal. Uh, it was single of the week in Melody Maker, you know, like, and it was uh, it made it to BBC Radio and things. So it's kind of funny. Uh, it's, that's it's almost kind of a forgotten thing. But if you look up the song Dream Figure, yes, uh, from Cardinal. Uh, but yes, certainly a, a whole different level of impact with yes. you know sub pop and and Warner, you know, music. Uh, we uh, releases uh, my. My single fanfare, you know, yes. in London, that was a big deal. That was the big one, wasn't it? And because, because obviously, you know, growing up, sort of during that indie period, and and the sort of indie period that I was talking about is like eighty three to eighty seven, which is basically the year of the Smiths, well, the, the duration of the Smiths. And then in this country, we had yeah. we had the dance scene with all the bands like Happy Mondays and the Stone Roses and Soup Dragons and Madchester. It was called. And then we had all the Czech, the men with Czech shirts. Well, don't, hey, don't 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 forget kissing the pink. Kissing the pink, indeed. <laughs> yes, we try to forget them. But look, but then we obviously got invaded, didn't we, from Seattle with our grunge scene and and being into. I, I, I'd like to well, I'd like to apologise for that, but yes, that that kind of knocked most of those bands out. I mean, a lot of the bands just gave up because they yeah. just thought no one wants us. And then then sort of obviously Chen. Uh, trends change again so were you um before as you were sort of in those early years before cardinal in the music world did you also what was you know because i know we listened to brendan flowers from the the famous um the killers he was really obsessed with all the bands from the 80s indie scene from from the uk like the cure and the the uh, the clash and the smiths were, were you influenced by those bands as well well not the clash uh the I was a little too young in 1979, um, and I was at that point still wholly focused on just becoming a great trumpet player, you know, a classical trumpet player. But yes, um, let's put it this way. The UK bands, you know, 81 through uh, 85, it ruined my life. It was too good. It was excellent. You know, I was headed on a single path to become a trumpet player that would sit in an orchestra playing you know, Beethoven and Mahler and Brahms and all this. Um, and then, yeah, it, it really started taking me over in my, it hit at the perfect time in my teenage years, of course, you know, the cure, Depeche Mode, 
even the main line mainstream bands like the police and duran duran and uh uh it's such a long list of groups uh susie and the banshees uh everything it took me over and it it started refocusing my musical mind yes in the direction of song you know you know me doing something maybe someday i like to sing so yeah being totally captivated by the smiths and um even that first kissing the pink album the big man wrestlers like 40 indian anyway so yeah yeah similarly yeah it it, uh, it became everything to me the the what we called the new wave bands coming out of england Yes, because um, cause at the, you know, you, because at your side, you know, you were giving us, our, you know, the glam metal period, weren't you, from L.A., you know, with Poisoned and the Guns N' Roses. So you were shipping those kind of um, rock and roll bands right. over to us, and we were giving you The Cure and angst, angsty, introspective kind of uh, slightly, uh, yes, nervous pop, you know. Well, with, listen, with, to me, it just, well, you're giving me two contrasting things. There's the American music of that period, which... I think is absolutely devoid of beauty and intellect and um, sort of emotion, emotional power, meaningful lyrics, you know, this kind of thing. Um, and so the music coming out of England represented, it was, you know, and rightfully so, it was billed as the second invasion, the second British invasion, you know, and for good reason, you know, the music here was terrible. You know, it was R&B, it was Whitney Houston, it was, uh, you know, the 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 heavy rock stuff. Um, America was, in my opinion, lost. Yes. Uh, we had we had a few acts that were working at a very high musical level. You know, Steely Dan was still working. You have Hall and Oates. There was there was some great American music, no doubt, but yes. um, it, it wasn't really the prevailing movement. So when you kind of became aware of bands like The Cure and The Smiths and that kind of lyrical content, did that also trigger something in your deep? DNA psyche. Well, yes, because see, I, I do draw a direct link between the British bands of the 1960s, you know, starting with the Beatles, of course. Um, there, there was a dedication to melody and craft in the songwriting, and I think most of those new wave bands, I don't think they even sat down with that kind of vision or architecture in mind. Uh, there was just some instinctually cool thing that was happening with lots of guys over in England where they sat down. I mean, I just think a simplistic band, you know, Joy Division that turns into New Order, um, you know, on paper, there's not a lot of intellect there happening on a music if you were to analyze what's happening. But there's such a, there's something so just raw, authentic. I'm having trouble expressing that subject, but yeah, but with it was with, cool on a whole level. Yes, but I think lyrically, yeah. when you listen to those Joy Division lyrics, and that's kind of what we were listening to, um, and sort of oh, reciting yeah. constantly, it it for me it drew on to that sense of complete kind of insecurity and neuroticness and sort mm-hmm. of and doubt which was very different because the charts often put, portray these kind of people on top of the pops and those kind of mainstream stations as everyone having a great time and having a party and if you're not one of those right. people having a party having a great time joy division was definitely there as a way to think yes they're talking about me you know like 
all those kind of uh, Ian Curtis lyrics. And and actually, for me, it also taps into the work of um, people like Burt Bacharach and uh, the Carpenters, because they also had lyrical content that that I related to as a very young child. Because when I listen to the songs of like Rainy Days and Mondays or I Say Goodbye to Love, Mm -hmm. but that Karen Carpenter song, I was like, oh, my God, you know, as a 10 year old, it was just so beautiful and so fragile. And then Ian Curtis and then Morrissey came along. And I was thinking that link in my brain just was, you know, there was no deviation. There was no sort of going off into a cul-de-sac. Yeah. It was it was an absolute, yeah, these are people who are singing about how I feel. Yeah, how I feel. It's, it's a lot of questions, of course. It's the, it's the, how do I survive this human condition? You know, what's my place in the world in this giant grinding machine of, uh, you know, having to be a grown-up? And, you know, you're a teenager and you're listening to these, these men express their insecurities. You know, that's why a guy like me loves a show like MASH, you know? Yes, absolutely. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's the examination, the, the deepest parts of this man, Hawkeye, who is absolutely out of, out of place in the world. You know, he, he's a deep-feeling guy who's, you know, surrounded by war and limbs hanging off of young men. Can't, he can't take it, and he cracks. You know, in the end, he cracks, you know? And, uh, you know, obviously Ian Curtis... Same guy. Yes. It's interesting you, know. you mentioned MASH because there was MASH, both the film and the series, and also there was another film and a book called Catch-22 that had a character called Usarian, who I related to a lot because he, he just, mm-hmm. he just mm-hmm. constantly felt that he was dying and everyone's out to kill him. And, um, and I thought, my God, that's me. Right. <laughs> I've got something wrong well, with me. Well, Holden, uh, yeah, well, of course, then the most famous, you know, Holden Caulfield of, you know, Catcher in the Rye. It's that same sort of... Um, you know, in funny, I I have kind of a split opinion. I'm not sure how helpful or um, you know, there's so much darkness. <laughs> there's enough darkness in the world without great authors and great art being centered around, say, young men who um, are on the edge of either wanting to kill themselves or or uh, you know self-destruct in some way. Um, so so much of the great art, though, is about that. You know. Um, even in the 19th century, if you're looking at the writings of Rimbaud, you know, from France, or, um, you know, even a middle-aged Baudelaire, it's also dark, and it, we are drawn to it. Yes. And it, it's, it's, part of, it's part of absolutely my overall aesthetic into what I am drawn to, you know, be it a Dead Can Dance album, you know, where you get a lot of that from Brendan Perry as well, you know. Yes. Um, you know, and 4AD was a big part of my, uh, my teenage years as well. And it feeds into that, that thing um, uh, that that helped me create the kind of music that I have made so far, you know, on my, what, seven solo albums. Indeed, we know how to get the party rocking. That was me in conversation with Eric Matthews, the first part of that interview. I'll bring you some more a little bit later. This is David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, it's always good to hear from you. You can via Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C86 Show. It's always good, especially if it's um, positive and groovy. Otherwise, don't bother. Look, we're going to have some more music and then more chat. This is going to be um, also taken from the album It's Heavy in Here. This is the track titled Forging Plastic Pain. Take it away, Eric.
That's all I can say, exquisite. Um, I can say it twice, in fact. Yes, Eric Matthews, that was a track titled Forging Plastic Pain. And um, as I said, it was taken from the sub-pop record It's Heavy in Here. This is going to be the second part of my interview with Eric, um, which I had a few weeks ago, where we talked about the musical changes um, and different styles that were happening from the indie days of the 80s to the dancing and then grunge. And... um, Yes, this is where we started discussing the birth of grunge. And Eric, I think he wanted to jump in there and uh, correct me on one little matter that I brought up. Eric, go for it. Brief, brief interruption. I remember the, the, the single, I don't know, I wasn't shocked. I knew what was happening, that, that grunge music, Seattle, it was a global movement, uh, you know, for a while there. But you know the thing that shocked me, two things that shocked me the most, when I, when I got off, on my, off the plane, my first visit to London, I was talking to, I think, my driver. They had sent me a car service of some sort to get me to the hotel. And, and this guy, he always picked, at the time, he must have been picking up uh, American recording artists all the time. He just started grilling me. Hey, have you ever met the... Anyway, this guy's main interest in life, and he was a, probably a 40-year-old man. He loved the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and he loved uh, 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 Garth Brooks. <laughs> Jeez, crazy. And I thought, what happened to jolly old England? <laughs> God, I don't know which one's worse, actually. God, that would be true. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but yes, Garth Brooks, what happened to him? But look, but then, yes, 
God, that's a hard image to take out of one's mind. But then you you obviously formed, you know, all part of Cardinal and then your solo album. So what was happening for you in that, those early, that period in the 90s? Well, um, I, I was living in Boston. Um, I, I had gone off to Boston and uh, still, I, okay, so I was about 20 years old when I moved to Boston. I had just done two years in San Francisco going to a conservatory there and, you know, playing classical music. And then I was shipping off to Boston to continue that. Well, I got this little, I got this little apartment, you know, in the basement and a few floors up, there was this guy, Bob Fay. And we started talking, we both had record collections and, you know, we were into bands and stuff. And eventually we just started, you know, we, let's, we decided to jam out. Well, he brought me to a, a thing, you know, and there's Lou Barlow. I don't know Lou Barlow or Sebado or, Dinosaur Jr. I didn't hear any of that stuff, but we started jamming and making music, and um, you know I just fell into a social scene uh, where I then also met Richard Davies, who was there living in Boston from uh, from Australia, and um, I simply fell into this entire thing, just meeting the right people, and uh, I made a little record with Lou Barlow. Um, that was that group was called Belt Buckle. Uh, the next thing that happened is I just, that would have been 92. I, I, Richard and Davies and I decided to partner up and make a group, uh, which turned into Cardinal. And uh, so I was kind of just minding my own business. I was still playing trumpet, and all of a sudden these kind of rock and roll guys, you know, indie types, uh, uh, in around the Cambridge area, actually, more than uh, Boston proper. But... Um, yeah, I mean, that's what was happening. And um, Cardinal, you know, the first thing we released got all sorts of attention, radio play, and uh, my phone started ringing literally the next day. Uh, Eric, Matthew, like, do you, are you, could, do you have your own songs? You know, that kind of thing. So Yes. And so did Cardinal, yeah. was Cardinal just a kind of a project that was only going to last for a very short time? Yeah, I mean, for, yeah, for multiple reasons. Um, in 1993, I decided to move back to Portland. Now we then in 19 then late 1993, Richard uh, came out to Portland. We made that album, the, the album proper. Um, but we were no longer living in the same city, and so that certainly had an effect. Um, and the Cardinal album was got enough attention and was successful enough that um, Richard and I both had you know, solo record deals, you know, laid in front of us as options. And so we started making solo records. And then, you know, really, before you know it, you know, enough years pass. And, you know, Cardinal was just sort of in the background. And he started pursuing more um, the, of the label, you know, not the label, like record label, but um, he had a group called The Moles, which I love a lot. Um, he started going more in the Moles direction. And, um, you know, between my solo career and, of course, trying to expand my reach into other people's music I, I started doing lots of session work you know and writing arrangements and that kind of thing because that you know that's that's sort of my as much as I am a songwriter and recording artist who sings I am also somebody who you know one hires to you know write brass arrangements and strings and yes. and so I enjoy that work so yeah so yeah, Cardinal, and then we did finally—I don't know. Hopefully, you, you heard it, but uh, we did have 
we finally were talked into doing a, a, a follow-up, a second Cardinal album. That came out in, I think, 2012, called Hymns. On, that's on, off of a London label called Fire. Fire Records, which um, a lot of people have had sort of kind of different experiences with Fire, but did you find that was all okay? It was. I mean, we uh, Cardinal was never a touring band, you know, so in the case of Fire... You know, they uh, they manufactured a beautiful project, they uh, a product. They um, they funded the recording. You know, they, they we didn't have any problem with fire. I mean, they they were they're big fans of uh, of Cardinal and of Richard, so they were very supportive. And it, you know, as far as I know, it went pretty well. Yes, and then yeah. so did you have a moment where you said that's that's the back in yeah more than mid nineties? Did you have a moment where you said that's it with Cardinal and continue with your solo career? Yeah, because I mean my solo career was going well enough, you know that uh, I don't know I didn't need Cardinal. I don't I want to say it like that, but uh, as much as I love working with Richard Davies and his songs, I mean the truth of it is I'm. Um, you know, a fairly selfish person regards to my my own musical vision, and uh, um, I I have done a number of uh, collaborations over the years, but uh, my preference is probably always to be sort of doing my own music. But yes. I love helping other. That's what I love. I love not writing songs with people. I lo- I love coming on to a project where they say, "Hey, make it a little better," meaning you know, let's. Can you do some strings? Can you do some horns? Um, even I get asked to play guitar a lot on people's records. So, um, you know, that there's great joy for me. There was a famous recording that the engineer had with the Trogs back in the 60s. Um, oh. When, he, when the band were having problems in the studio and they kept shouting at him to sprinkle some fairy dust on the, on the recording oh. to try and make another hit. Yeah. And it was one of those ones okay, that I think I think I think got sort of um, I could send you the the clip of it. It does it is quite amusing, but sure. um, you'll you'll probably bring back lots of memories of you being in the recording studio with people not quite holding. Well, that it reminds together. me, like well, like early Cat Stevens. I think there's a lot of magic dust sprinkled on that stuff. Father and son, you know, g- very interesting artist, great singer, you know, guitar, everything beautiful, but. All in the '60s, I love how common it was just to throw a lot of magic onto a record. You know, you think of the Walker Brothers or, or all that stuff where they just, you know, stacks of brass and strings. And I mean, you could make something terrible sound amazing. Yes, well, this is true actually, because there was a there was a bit yeah. of a, there was a fashion also in the in the mid um, '90s with a lot of bands suddenly having this kind of a slight orchestral quality because there was a band called My Life Story who suddenly started like that. But there were a lot of other bands who suddenly appeared on various shows, like the Manic Street Preachers, with a brass section. And you think, where, where did that come? You were sort of like a four-piece band, just a rock indie band. Right. And suddenly someone said, look, we need to have, we need to sort of up the game here. So obviously the brass section became quite a sort of um, a trendy, on-trend thing. But with your first right. solo album, did that come together relatively easily? Because often the first record is the one that people have had all this pent-up kind of creativity and it just all comes out and it's either amazing or it's a bit forgettable. I mean, it could either be either way, can it? Be? Sure. But did, did you find that the, the sort of solo album come together kind of almost in an effortless way? 
Yeah, it was very, it was pretty easy. I mean, the songs were written, of course. You know, it's not like today where they send you in the studio and tell you to go write an album. Um, so I had the songs, and I had a a pretty well sketched out. I, you know, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. The only wild card with the album was how much electric guitar was I going to incorporate? Because I already had all the arrangements, you know, in my head sketched out with all the strings. I write, you know. One of the luxuries, I'm not reliant on other people to put all that magic dust, you know, the brass and the strings. I can write all those myself. I can sit at the piano and just do it. So the the only, you know, question mark, what was I going to do for like, I, I, I was very conscious that in order for something that I was going to, for an album, a collection of songs to be appealing to enough of the right people, there was going to have to be some elements of rock. So certainly, um, you know, drums, bass, guitar. I brought in Jason Faulkner, if you know who he is. He was a friend of mine. Yeah, he was, oh, he, he was at the time. He, he was he in Jellyfish, come off wasn't of Jellyfish. Yes. Jellyfish, and then after that he had a group called The Greys. Uh, and just a fantastic rock musician and just musician. He's a composer. He was a concert pianist in his youth. Uh, so this is a, a very talented guy, somebody I had a lot in common with. We, you know, we came up through classical music, but we're both songwriters now, and we met. And uh, I brought him in, and I gave him a lot of space to create, and you know, on electric guitar particularly. Um, he contributes on many instruments, but um, on electric guitar, all those moving melodies and fanfare. Da 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 da. You know, and this is a. Uh, that's just an ornament, sort of an ornamental guitar line that is on, you know, it's electric. Um, you know, he was of tremendous help and a huge influencer on the way that album turned out. Um, so, yeah, listen, it was, I, I, I recorded the album in three weeks, um, mixed it in 10 days with uh, Tony Lash. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was stressful. It was my first time, you know, with a big budget that kind of thing on a major label, yes. an indie label, but, you know, a large indie label. No pain, no gain. That's what we say Well, when we're in the gym anyway. That was the second part of my interview with Eric Matthews. Um, I've still got quite a bit more to play, but I thought I should put in another song just to keep the party rocking. This is a track titled Soul Nation Select Them. Take it away, Eric. Chosen your day 
The classy stuff that was Eric Matthews with the track Soul Nation Select Them. That was again from the album It's a Heavy in Here. This is going to be the third part of my interview with Eric, where we talk about um, his relationship with Sub Pop Records because obviously in the late 80s, early 90s, they were sort of surfing the musical zeitgeist of all things grunge and anything from Seattle. Eric, were you surprised by being on Sub Pop? And this was his answer. Take it away. Yeah, it was a departure. Um, I think when Sub Pop signed me to the label, um, listen, I was not a fan of Sub Pop bands prior prior to that period. I believe they signed a bunch of great artists uh, in the 90s. Uh, I think of Zampano, and uh, I'm a, I am a fan of Sebado, um, and you know Sunny Day Real Estate, Jeremy Enoch. I like that stuff, and that's my era. I was not a fan uh, of the of the that prior period. They were trying to. They, somebody got the creative idea over there to let's let's um, let us try to expand the musical palette of what we're doing here. And you mentioned uh, Shudder to Think. Uh, I was talking to Jonathan Poneman one day early in my days at Sub Pop, and uh, he told me the story because I was just asking him questions and you know what you know what's going on with the business and everything and. We were just talking about various, you know, signings and bands and everything, and I think I I had some cause to mention Shudder to Think, and uh, they were in negotiations. They they ended up passing on Shudder to Think for some reason, um, which he did confess was a bit of a regret because they turned out pretty well. But um, I literally took that spot. Right, because they yeah, went. They, I, they, they, so they, I. I I think they were in search for a young man with a sort of uh, adventurous musical spirit, you know. And uh, Shudder to Think is very different than what I do. It's it is has a more of a hard rock element to it, but then at least, um, 
but uh yeah listen they they were they started uh, signing all sorts of like they had like a sort of a cocktail lounge act uh, pink uh, no, what was their group combustible Edison. so they were trying a lot of different things and they identified in me um he once i, I was once told you know i was like a, a british act they thought yeah I, which is interesting uh I mean, I'll take that. I mean, most of the music I've always loved was British, you know, 80s, yes. 90s. I, I was a big... I, listen, I followed that whole thing through, man. I, I love Oasis. I know those guys are weird, but, um, you know, I love all those. I love all those bands. Not all of them, but, um, you know, Jarvis Cocker. Because with most bands, you know, the one thing I've found is that they have this kind of five-year narrative where they, you know, they... In your case, it's a bit different because you're, the, the, you're the, the artist, not so much the band, but often people get together... They create a bit of a sound. They get a single, and and in in the case of being in the UK, you know, John Peel would play a sort of a, a track, and if that if that was the case, that would give them that kind of, I suppose, a bigger audience. So they were able to sort of get a few gigs elsewhere in the country, and then a John Peel session, which was when you know they would go in and record four tracks in one day, and and that would really kind right. of put them into the album, and then a bit of a bigger tour around the country, and people sort of being interested, and possibly Europe. But then often in the second second or third album things were often going wrong so most people only last five years in this kind of business but you obviously were able or have been able to to navigate that which is um quite impressive because because obviously after it's heavy here you must in here you must have had a bit of a a buzz around you and people sort of thinking this is great the second album's going to come out and it's going to be even bigger um so how did you sort of navigate through those kind of that kind of next period which is often where things get a little bit tricky and dark well th- things did get tricky i mean there's a full i think six or seven years between album two and three um most rational people may have just given up at that point what i did um, you know, so we're talking, uh, then I finally got, I, I got dropped from Sub Pop in 1999. I was about, I was readying my third album, you know, right on schedule. And they went through all sorts of financial crisis and they, they cleared out almost all their artists actually and started over basically. I think that's a famous story, but yeah, I had no label, nowhere to go. The music industry was changing, you know, Napster, everything. Labels were closing left and right. So it was a bad time. It was a bleak period of six or seven years where I didn't have any Eric Matthews product. And so I just threw myself headlong into working with other bands, you know, uh, Tahiti 80, uh, this group Ivy out of New York, uh, Dandy Warhols. You know, they, they kept me busy in the early 90s, uh, which that stuff all went over very well in London, as you know. Yes. Um, yeah, so I, my thing is like, well, okay, I'm going to wait this thing out. I'm going to become a sideman. I'm going to be that guy who you call for, for trumpets, for, uh, you know, for backing vocals, for production help, string arranging. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I just, that was my method. I just, I never stopped. Number one, I knew that I had, dozens and dozens of songs that were good that would continue to be good i believe that i would be able to continue writing into well into my future into my 50s and 60s i believe i'm a believe i'm one of those guys I, i'm delusional maybe you know Burt Bacharach could still probably sit down and write a song right now that's yes musically that's musically good i believe i'm a composer i'm not some little rock star guy um who's going to burn out in five years and then i don't know die in a bar 
yes. fight or whatever. Yeah, so, you know, I just, uh, you know, keeping the faith, God's plan for me, my ambition musically, and that's all that it is. I've never wanted to be wealthy or famous. That's just not in my DNA. Um, I'm a musician. Mm. I started as a musician, a little kid, you know, learning Miles Davis records and, you know, a little older than I'm like, you know, I'm picking the, the trumpet parts off of Star Wars records, you know, John Williams. So I'm a musician. Okay. So I, I didn't know that it would come back around that labels would then. Yeah. So I've had four albums, five albums since, you know, that bleak period. I just keep going. And, uh, I have another album I'm starting, right? I'm not starting. I am finishing. I'm just starting to mix finishing touches really. Um, and I'm hoping that'll be out next year. Yes, because um, two artists that I've interviewed for this show has been a guy called Lawrence, who was in Felt, and then he was in uh, Denim, and then another band called Mozart's Cocart, which is quite mm-hmm. wacky, and Momus, who and both have, have were solo artists, and they just literally did an album a year, and I think they've been doing that ever since almost the beginning, and, and they are what I ref- think of after interviewing them as kind of an absolute artist in the sense that it doesn't really matter if anyone buys their work, they're just going to keep doing it, which is quite right. unusual because obviously a lot of people, especially bands, you know, they, they just realise after five years they've actually got have made no money and they're broke and they're really mm-hmm. fed up. And that's often what kind of makes them just quit the industry just to, because they just want to, I don't know, there was a guy from a, from a band called the Jazz Butchers from the UK who oh, yeah. said he just wanted to buy a clean pair of pants or a new pair of pants because he just didn't have any money and he mm-hmm. just and he just felt very depressed because in a way, you yeah. know, the industry wasn't, going to you know ever pay for it so obviously you you know and 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 i often think of people like david bowie were just able to sort of keep that focus right through your life and there was never a plan b yeah that's a big part of it not not having a plan b i mean it really was too late for me to you know go back and try to become a symphony trumpet player you know that's not something you can put off for 10 years or you know so absolutely i mean and I'm not that worldly a person. I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm frugal with my money, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, I made enough money in those, uh, on those early, uh, the early part of my career that, you know, I was able to buy this house I'm sitting in. It's, it's an old church from 1909. It's this big sprawling building. I got a studio. I've got, you know, a big gym, a huge kitchen, you know, so listen, I feel like I made it. You know what I mean? Yes. You pay, you pay. You know, I feel like I, I've made it. Um, there's always some label. Listen, when it, when it seems bleak and there's no hope, like where's that next record? Who's going to put out my next record? I'm one of the I'm one of these guys. You mentioned, you know, they put out a record per year and they, you know, they don't do it for money or anything. Um, that's an option I've had. I mean, we're not we are now in the DIY era, but I'm a guy who still relies. I don't know emotionally, but maybe it's maybe it's psychological. Uh, on a label putting out. I, I want to have a label that has a plan, that has a little bit of advertising, some sort of marketing savvy um, that will do, you know, ha- they have to pay for everything. Yes. Um, you know, I'm one of those guys. So it'll happen when it happens. And I'm not interested in going at my, I'm not, I'm not going to be the guy printing postage and stuffing envelopes in, you know, with CDs. And so I just, I don't have that in me. Not yet. I don't. And, I'm only getting, I'm turning 50 in a few months, a uh, couple months. So 
I doubt that's going to change. So I'm just going to let my career go the way it goes. Yeah. And when, and when you look at the, the output that you've been and the releases, do you see much change between one album to the next because of sort of, you know, just the passing of time and going through the processes that you go through? Well, I think that the only thing that really changes, um, I mean, my songwriting style doesn't really change, but um, my voice is changing as the years go. In many ways, um, it's I've grown in my range. Um, not being a touring artist, I don't put the kind of mileage on my throat like most guys do. So I'm developing in a way that most singers don't get to develop. Um, there's not that wear and tear. Um, my voice is opened up. I can sing louder and higher than I could when I was 25. So um, th- that's an element. You'll, you hear that on my last album a lot, and my next album coming, it's it's more vocally adventurous than than ever before. Um, production techniques are changing because of technology. You know, I have access. There's more you can do just at your house, you know, in your own studio by yourself than before. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the progression as a composer, that's something that can be heard. If, if you were a, 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 a music theorist, you could look at my, and you could see that it grows more and more harmonically complex as the years go. Mm. There, are, there are chords and voicings happening in my songs now that weren't in 1995 or in the year 2000. So I'm expanding my musical language, which is, that, that is every composer that there ever was, that's what happened. You know, sometimes there's a regression, they go back to folk music or something, but, um, you know, uh, I'm reaching for something that I, that I don't know about, you know, yeah. with the chords. And do you, know, you so. <clears throat> and because you, you, you've obviously got a classical background, do you listen to things like the New World Symphony by, is it Jorkev? Jorkev? Um, you know, who's Dvorak? Yes. I just wondered if composers like that also influenced you a lot as well. Those kind of, and there's also, absolutely. And Aaron, is Aaron Copeland as well with his kind of, um, Aaron Copeland is very optimistic. Aaron Copeland. Yeah. Yes. So yes, all the greats from symphony hall, um, you know, are part of my, my background and uh, what I performed as a young man and what I uh, listened to, um, you know, Mussorgsky, the Russian composers, the French composers, uh, you know, early music, but also, and as important as all of that, is the film music of the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Right, like Gershwin. Well, Gershwin, yeah, important guy, but Bernard Herrmann um, is, is, is one of my huger influences. Um, you know, he did all the Hitchcock films. Um, but, you know, film music, the American, well, and some of it is European as well. Um, a lot of those guys were imported, like Honegger, you know, from of Germany. You know, Hindemith, you know, all these these great composers. Yeah, I am, listen, I do consider myself part of that tradition, uh, like a little pimple on their butt. Yes. <laughs> tradition. I mean, I'm nothing. These are these are men who sat down and wrote for 150 instruments, you know, one hour pieces, you know, and they did that routinely. Uh, I am not that. Nor I, I, 
I am a small, tiny version of that. As Brian Wilson once said, pocket symphonies. Okay. Because actually, because recently I was down in London and I saw, um, it was a guy called Barry Humphreys, who's really obsessed with the the music of the German Weimar Republic from the, you know, the 30s, who did, they did all those kind of, uh, is it uh, Bernard Bernard Breck and... um, God, all those oh, Brett, yeah. Breck and uh, Kirk Vile okay. and all these kind of artists from that particular, they were all quite dark and sort of slightly mm-hmm. operatic and sinister, like, uh, was it Mac the Knife? Well, I think, uh, and those... listen, I think that's where my, I think that's where one of my favourite artists gets a lot of his inspiration, that Neil Hannon from The Divine Comedy, you know. Yes, I forgot. We yeah, saw, think... yes, that's right. Yeah, he... Yeah, I think he, he he draws from that tradition a great deal in his work, his writing. Um, he's probably, by the way, he's he is my favorite and most dependable artist for the last twenty years of the UK. I think that he's the. I think he's leading the pack in many ways over this last twenty years. Yes, and it was yes. Yeah, so that was interesting because I'd forgot the. I saw them live during their period, and there was this thing with Britpop. You had the guitar bands, but then you had pulp, then you had Divine Comedy, My Life Story, and there was a, you know, and obviously then your album came along as well, the first one, and it was this kind of lush orchestral pop, which we all went, oh, that's a bit sexy, and and quite a relief because it was a bit different as well and a bit more sophisticated. And it yeah, wasn't... well, when I when it, when when I arrived in London, there was a whole that was in a way you're, you're pointing to something that's so real it's um there was a movement within the general movement and you know uh, this at the same publicity firm that was working on my album um i was there in the office and the the guy from the boo radleys was there if you remember the boo radleys. oh yes yes absolutely wake up boo. yes um so there, there there was all sorts of interesting things happening and you know orchestrated you know lush uh, pop groups that had a darkness, you know, like, uh, and uh, I, I was so happy to find that. Yes, absolutely. And just, just lastly, what would, what would you say to your eighteen-year-old self? You know, I just wondered what sort of wisdom you've picked up over the decades that, um, that you think, God, oh, that that would be something worth, you know, not putting in a tweet, but you know, just kind yeah. of imparting on somebody. Yeah. Well, 18 is interesting. Um, you know, that's, you know, I, I was still a trumpet player and I was headed off to conservatory to continue that. I suppose the only, I, I, this would be to admit that there's something I did wrong or there's some regret or something that I'd like to do over. That's how I'm taking the question. And I think the fates unfolded perfectly, you know. So I, I think my first reaction is, well, put down that trumpet, get away from your, go start, start guitar. I never picked up a guitar until I was 20. Okay. So maybe pick up a guitar and sit at the piano when you're 18 instead of when you actually started. Um, but it's fine. I mean, I, um, I developed so much as a, as a horn person. I mean, when I was 18, I was sitting in San Francisco. I, uh, I don't know how I got the call. I was already getting a little bit of notoriety around town. Um, I got called to do a session. What's the, I'm sitting there writing brass parts for like five guys um, in a you know like a jazz funk rock group for a San Francisco Giants baseball game. They're going to play this over the public address before it's like go Giants go yeah whatever <laughs> it was. And so listen, these are critical experiences that I wouldn't want want to have missed out on. So. 
it's all fine. Yes. Well, I think most people, yeah. it was um, the answer that a lot of people give or the response is, you know, I wish we'd worked harder, I wish we'd practiced more, I wish we'd taken it a bit more seriously, or actually mm-hmm. you try to enjoy it rather than being so angsty and so uptight during that period. Or I wish I'd understood about the business more. And I think or in a, in a couple of cases, sure. we, I wish we didn't take drugs and had drunk so much. But, but you know, it's, uh, it's, sure. it's, of, it's often, you know, actually, we, I wish we'd practiced and had taken it a bit more serious. But at the same time enjoyed it which is a bit of an oxymoron I suppose but at the same time I think I get the gist that you know it kind of came quite naturally and the first album was kind of like oh that's quite exciting and didn't realise that you then need to do the hard work to keep that going Yeah well that's the neat thing because I was so dedicated in really my my true youth when I was a kid I mean I was so I was the kid who yeah I, I played outside I did play some sports and stuff but I mean, I I spent more time with my head just buried in the speakers, studying the vocal arrangements, the uh, you know the, uh, the the brass strings, everything, just listening and studying, and then playing and being in ensembles. I did a lot of that hard work as a kid. You know what I mean? Like really understanding the ensemble, and that's what I bring. That's what I. That is the the purpose of me making. I'm trying to work in the ensemble, even if it's just me playing everything. Yes. You know, it's it's the act of, of uh, you are part of a, um, you know, I understand the small parts of a large working thing. Okay, it's my experience. It's it's what I it's what it's what thrills me about music. You know, I when I was a kid, I loved being. I loved when I was not the. You know, most of my career, my young career, I was always the best trumpet player. You know, anywhere you could find. But there were those few occasions where I wasn't. And I enjoyed more being down the line a little bit where I was playing the harmony part, the little, what seemed not significant. It wasn't the solo. I liked that. That job was my favorite. Yes. Well, it was, it's interesting when you pull those classic uh, songs apart sometimes because, because interesting, I just watched a documentary on the common, the song, the common people. Yes, that's the one in it by Polk, mm. and um, and this composer, you know, classical composer, pulled it apart to try and work out what was good. And it it was like the one thing he picked out, and it would be very hard to try to describe it on the phone. But he just said it was this little piano bit which kind of re- re- repeats this do 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 do. You know, he said the rest of it is a bit umpa umpa umpa. You know, the lyrics are very visual; you can really pick them straight away. It's a very bouncy, right. very energetic song. You know, as he pulled it apart, he said, you know, it really shouldn't work, but it does work and then but you get this one little bit where it keeps the climax going this on the piano and he said that that was the thing you know so it is right sometimes it is that little moment that little bit of fairy dust that that pulls the whole thing together so it's um it's almost worth checking uh, tracking down the the story of the common people um by paul well i i actually you know what i actually watched that already i uh, four or five months ago i watched that and i was I really loved it. It's yeah. a great little uh, film piece. Oh, I'm glad you saw it. Otherwise, you think, "Oh, what the hell yeah. is he on about?" <laughs> but I d- no. Yeah. Listen, I'm. Uh, listen, my name is Matthews. My great grandfather came from Wales. Understand me? I'm a British guy somewhere. Yes. Deep you- down. Oh, UK, UK-er. I know it's all getting a bit Leonard Cohen there. But anyway, that was the last part of my interview with Eric Matthews from. Eric Matthews and Cardinal and various other sort of uh, 
side projects that he's done over the years. But anyway, a big thank you for giving me the time for that interview. Much appreciated. And that, sadly, is the end of the show. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show, if you want to contact me. You can via Facebook or Twitter. It is C at C86. I will be there. It's always fun. Anyway... Tune in next week, I'll have another special guest, but I'll leave you with another track. This is from a different album. This is, uh, the title is My Morning Parade, and this is from the album The Lateness of the Hour. Have a great week. Slow